Bible reading is from Leviticus chapter 9, verses 1 to 7. It's page 83. Reading now Leviticus chapter 9 and verse 1. On the eighth day, Moses summoned Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take a bull calf for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And say to the people of Israel, Take a male goat for a sin offering, a calf and a lamb, yearlings without blemish, for a burnt offering, and an ox and a ram for an offering of well-being to sacrifice before the Lord, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. They brought what Moses commanded to the front of the tent of meeting, and the whole congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. And Moses said, This is the thing that the Lord commanded you to do, so that the glory of the Lord may appear to you. Then Moses said to Aaron, Draw near to the altar and sacrifice your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and sacrifice the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Now shall we turn to Romans, the book of Romans and chapter 8. And we read just one, verses 1 to 4. And that's on page 918. The book of Romans and chapter 1. Uh, sorry, chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For God had done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, so that the just requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, you may not know, but there are many, many different uh, celebrations and uh, special days and uh, seasons in the life of the church. Uh, one of them is called Epiphany. Uh, there's also Ascension Day. Uh, there's Trinity Sunday. I'll bet there's one that you didn't know, and uh, that's today, actually. Anyone know what today is? No. Today is Gaudete Sunday. I knew you wouldn't know that. It's the third Sunday of Advent. Uh, it comes from the Latin word gaudeo, which is uh, joy. It's a Sunday of joy, and today is gaudy Sunday, joyful Sunday, you see. Uh, lots and lots of celebrations in the Christian church, but it's only Christmas and Easter that have really survived in, in maximum prominence, not just in the church, actually, but in the wider society as well. Christmas and Easter. Christmas and Easter. And I want to suggest that that's neither trivial nor accidental. Christmas and Easter, incarnation and atonement, are the two greatest of the great moments of the gospel. Everything else depends on Christmas and Easter. All that God has done in Jesus Christ really gets kind of brought to a high point 
in these two achievements. And what's really important is that they belong together. Um, Without Easter, Christmas is meaningless. Without Christmas, Easter is at best a waste of time. At worst, it's the most monstrous injustice that's ever occurred in the history of the world. And it's this portion, this first opening paragraph of Romans chapter 8 that brings Christmas and Easter together in such beautiful power and harmony. Uh, We're going to unpack it uh, under three headings. Uh, You'll see them there. Uh, No, you don't. Um, Claire, have I got that back? There you go. Nope. Uh, the, the what of Christmas, what happened, the how of Christmas, how it happened, and the why of Christmas, why it happened, and how that is Christmas is related to Easter. This is going to be, because the Christmas season is not kind of frantic and intense enough, this is going to be the heaviest, most kind of mind-bending sermon that you're going to hear from me all year. Actually, I've got one more to go, so we'll see. Uh, and so that's why I've got the, the wireless mic on. I'm going to do my Madonna kind of thing. I'm going to wander around. I'm going to see if you're with me. If you're not awake, I'm going to point to you. I might even name you. Okay, you've got to stay with me on this one because this is really, really important. It's really, really deep. It's really complex. Uh, it might even be really challenging. So first then, the what of Christmas. Uh, the birth of Jesus Christ didn't come in a vacuum. Uh, lots and lots of babies are born. We had babies born in the morning congregation on a regular basis. We've got new little cutie babies. They're all wonderful cutie babies. But Jesus wasn't born like just one, another, one of another in the long run of babies. Jesus was born specifically as the long-promised Messiah for Israel. And so here's the question that you've got to ask yourself. I don't know if you've ever, ever thought about this question. Israel was already the people of God. Israel was already those who had received the blessings of God. In particular, Israel was the people who had received that specific blessing of God called the the Torah, the Word of God, the law of God. Not not a nasty law that sort of oppresses, but the law that's sweeter than honey. That's that's a, a precious gift. Israel already had all these gifts. She was the people of God. You see the question? Why then does Israel need a Messiah? Why did they need a Saviour? And that's the question that Romans 7 deals with. Simply having the Torah, the Word of God, wasn't enough. It was never going to be enough. Rules never are enough, not enough to renew and revive the human heart. Uh, Most often they just kind of poke and prod and cajole and evoke. I mean, just think about um, how the effect, uh, what the effect is of the uh, road rules and parking rules are on, say, your friends, you see. Right? What is the effect that rules have? You know exactly what the effect that rules have. And so Paul finds himself as a classic member of Israel uh, in this sort of excruciating dilemma at the end of chapter 7 of Romans. He says, with his mind, I'm a servant, a slave to the law of God. With my mind, I'm a servant, I'm a slave to the law of God. I love the law of God. But with my flesh, now pause here because it's really important to get what he means by his flesh. He doesn't, he doesn't mean the sort of the, the meat of his, of his body particularly, although it's related to the body, but we're not going to go into that for the moment. Okay? What he means by flesh is that broken, twisted, bent kind of part of human nature that says, you know what? For me, 
70 kilometers an hour is perfectly safe because I'm a seriously good driver. For me, if I need to jump out and get some milk from the corner shop and there's a no stopping sign there, actually, it doesn't apply to me right now. Me. Even if it means I park in front of the exit driveway from the St Albans 5 dock car park, as many people have done, blocking me in. The rules don't apply to me because I'm competent to run my life my way. That's the flesh. That's the flesh. And the apostle says that with his mind, speaking as Israel in this dilemma, you see, with his mind, he's a slave to the law of God. With his flesh, in his flesh, he's a slave to the law of sin. The flesh which says, I'm okay to run my life according to my rules, which I'll decide when they do or don't apply to me. With his flesh he serves sin, and so it's like the Torah, the very law of God, has become a law of, look how Paul puts it in verse 2, it's become a Torah, a law of sin and death. And his question is, who can break through this? Who can rescue him from this? Who can do for him, and not just him, for Israel, and ultimately actually for all people, who can do for him and for everyone what the law could never do? Who can do for him what the law only will ever leave failed? Even the good law, the law of God, holy and just and honourable and righteous, but still the law weakened by the brokenness of bent and twisted human nature. That's the question that Paul puts it. Who can help? Who can rescue me? And his answer is that God has done something. God has done something, personally and intimately and entirely. And what has he done? Well, you see how Paul describes it there in verse 3. He sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, literally, that reads, he sent his own son in the likeness of the flesh of sin. One half verse, one phrase. Vast galaxies of depth of meaning. And so what we're going to do is we're going to slow right, right, right down and uh, I'm going to uh, get my screen back You need because you need the connection's gone. The Lord has delivered. Come on. You just, you just need to see where we're going, otherwise you'll get lost and confused and bereft and you'll say, Andrew, Andrew, where are we going? Oh, we're on, but it's just confused. Come on. Oh, for goodness sake. Okay, here we go. First, notice that what Paul says here is that God sent his own son. It's very important to uh, see what uh, is being said when uh, the apostle says that God sent his own son. Uh, You began when you were conceived. Okay, that's fairly uncontroversial. 
What the Apostle is saying is that Jesus Christ began before he was conceived. In fact, Jesus Christ never began because he was eternally begotten of the Father. Jesus Christ is what's called pre-existent. Pre-existent. As the Nicene Creed puts it, which we say at the the, the Lord's Supper each month, uh, he was eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, and in case you hadn't already got the point, true God from true God, he was begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. What the Apostle is alluding to here by saying that God sent his Son, he was sort of this pre-existent one, is that Jesus Christ is truly and fully, absolutely God. This one who was born in a stable and crucified on a cross had a fully, truly divine nature. Now it's very important you see this and and hold this because if he's not God, if Jesus Christ is not God, then God has not come to us and shown us himself and revealed his own nature to us of grace and mercy. If he's not God, then, then your guesses about God are as good as anyone else's guesses, or rather, should I say, your guesses about God are as bad as anyone else's guesses, uh, hopelessly kind of biased and twisted. We'll do it to suit ourselves. If Jesus is not God, then we don't have God's own self-revelation. And at the same time, if he's not God, then it's not God who forgives us when Christ says he has authority on earth to forgive your sins. If he's not God, then it's not God who justifies you when Jesus Christ says, uh, neither do I condemn you. If he's not God, it's not God who saves you. It's just another person. If If I were to come to you and offer to forgive your sins, you'd say, thank you very much, Andrew. I couldn't give a toss what you do with my sins. You can't do anything with my sins he can because he's the one against whom you've sinned if he's not God all we have at best is someone setting us a great example which will ultimately become crushing at worst we have someone tricking us into following him but either way if Jesus Christ is not God then we don't have God showing himself to us and we don't have God saving us So point number one in the what of Christmas, truly, fully, pre-existent, divine. And. Now it's very important that whatever you do, you resist the temptation to say but. Right? Don't say but. And. And. Truly and fully human. Now listen to how the Apostle puts it. He's he's incredibly bold. He says that he sent his son into the likeness of the flesh of sin. Now, the reason I slow that down is because that, remember, the flesh is just what he said in chapter 7 is the essence of the problem. The root cause of all and every mess in your life and in the world is the flesh. That instinct, as I say, that brokenness we all have to curve in on ourselves to seek what suits us rather than what's honourable and noble and life-giving the way God made things to be and for God who made us to be. 
The, the apostle has just said that the flesh is the problem and it's such a terrible thing that when you add even the law of God to the flesh, all it does is result bizarrely in more sin. That's how unbelievably corrupting flesh is. Do you see? You with me? And he says he sent his son into the likeness of the flesh of sin. Now, you've got to keep working with me here because this is really hard and really complicated and you just, you've got to stay with this because you've got to hold multiple things together at the same time. The word likeness here means the same as it does all through Romans. It means the same as it does in Philippians chapter 2 uh, where the apostle says that Jesus was born in human likeness. When he says Jesus was born in human likeness, he doesn't mean Jesus was born sort of human but not really human. He means Jesus was really born human. And in the same way, when he says here that Jesus was born in the likeness of the flesh of sin, he means he was born really in the flesh. The flesh which bends in the direction of sin. Or to put it technically, and I, I, I don't think there's any other way you can take these words seriously without drawing this conclusion, Jesus took to himself our brokenness, a broken, fallen, human nature what the author of the epistle to the hebrews says when he says that jesus christ was tempted in every way as we are now think about that for a moment tempted in every way as we are not tempted in every way as adam was you see adam who would not created with fallen human nature had unfallen human nature he was tempted in a way that's different from he he didn't he didn't have, well, he didn't have the bowling ball problem. You know, have you ever been lawn bowling? Um, the staff were going to have their Christmas party yesterday, uh, lawn bowling, but then there was a thunderstorm. One got struck by lightning and killed. I won't, no, that's not true. Um, so we abandoned the, the abandoned game with the bowling balls. And I was told this morning that they're not called bowling balls. That's 10-pin bowling. They're just called bowls. Bowls, 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 bull bowls. What happens when you bowl a bowl? What happens? You know what happens? Yeah, you have to aim it not where you want to aim it. You have to aim it somewhere else so that it ends up where you're going. It's got a bent, a bias in it. That's how we're tempted. We're tempted with a bias in us, with a bentness to us. And Jesus Christ was tempted in every way as we are. That's what the apostle says that he was, uh, came into the likeness of the flesh of sin, truly human, broken, bent and biased, and, right, got to hold on to these two things at the same time, and never gave into it. Never was sidetracked by that bias. Never was overwhelmed by fear or stuck in stupid pride or anything right from within our nature, he triumphed. He overcame. He lived a perfectly straight life under God. He redeemed and healed us from the inside. And everything hangs on the fact that he was truly human precisely like this, in the likeness of sinful flesh. 
Because he was truly and fully human, it means that God's revelation to us is in our frame of reference. There's a movie, I think, at the moment, which has uh, these sort of the aliens, you know, the sort of one of these alien movies. Aliens come to Earth and they try and communicate with them. And we need some really, really smart person to kind of interpret and figure out the alien language and tell us what it means. And who knows if they get it right. If Jesus wasn't truly, fully human like we are, then we don't have God communicating to us from the inside. We don't have God communicating to us in a way that's comprehensible and understandable and accessible. And likewise, because he's truly and fully human, his death for sin is an act of God himself in human nature, not just an external act of God upon human nature. The, the ancient uh, theologians have a, a great phrase that they use to describe this point that Paul's making in Romans 8.3. They said, what is not assumed is not healed. What is not assumed is not healed. It's a very interesting way to put it, isn't it? So Jesus, if Jesus Christ only came and took on pre-fallen human nature, then he's going to save all the people that he became like, all those non-fallen people. Hand, hands up, all the, all the non... None. He saves those he became like. What is not assumed is not healed. From within, tempted precisely and in the same way as you and I are, he triumphed, he overcame, he was sinless, truly human. He walked the path that God had for him. And so point one, in the what of Christmas, he's fully and truly divine. Point two, in the what of Christmas, he's truly and fully human. And everything hangs on the fact that you hold both of those together. And third, he was one person a single divine human person, the God-man. One individual, one agent who says things and does things, one person who acts personally and individually. Uh, Jesus Christ is not like plywood. Two, you know plywood where you put two different sorts of wood together, you just glue them together and they're really, really close. A divine nature and a divine person and a human nature and a human person stuck together. No, no, that's not the incarnation. One person, one agent, what the early theologians called one hypostasis, one individual identity in hypostatic union. And again, everything depends on this. If the two natures are two persons glued together, then the human words and acts of Jesus Christ would not be the acts of the divine person. And the divine words and acts of Jesus Christ would not be the words and acts of the human person. There would be no true fellowship. There'd be no actual communion and reconciliation between God and humanity. There'd just be a really kind of nice handshake. And that's all. No union. Which leads to the final point about the what of Christmas. Notice that in Romans 8, this is all God's idea. God has done what the law couldn't do. God has sent his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as we'll see in a moment, God has condemned sin in the flesh. God is the great agent of this rescue mission and freedom. 
And, and the reason I highlight that is to say we have to kind of make sure we get to an end and never, never kind of allow ourselves to drift into the idea that Jesus Christ, the, the very relatable to Jesus Christ who was born as one of us and who we can know and who the gospel stories are about and who we can connect with and he does beautiful things to people and he's really fierce with people that he needs to be fierce with. It's not nice Jesus Christ rescues us from angry God. It's not that merciful Jesus Christ rescues us from harsh, angry God. If that's what you think, if that's what you think Christmas is, if that's what you think the gospel is, you'll never love God as your heavenly Father. You'll always cower away from God and be fearful of Him. The whole gospel is God's idea in the first place. As Paul writes elsewhere, it's out of the great love with which he loved us. So that's the what of Christmas. Truly and fully God, truly and fully human, one person, God's idea. Second, how? How did that happen? And the truth is that's a question that's above your and my pay grade. If ever there was going to be something that we could properly call a mystery, that is something which is undeniably real and true, but that we don't have the insight or comprehension to get inside, well, it's not particularly surprising that the Word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, it's going to be right up there. And this relates to something really important that we've touched on a couple of times uh, in this Christmas series, and it's this. Um, the way you think about God, the way you come to understand and then to love God is not to have your pre-existing categories about what God must and must not be like and then fit the reality of Jesus Christ into your categories and ideas. That's not going to work. It's got to be the other way around. That you take the reality of Jesus Christ presented to us in Scripture and if that messes with your categories and ideas, well, okay. That's kind of tough. So be it. You reform your ideas and categories in the light of what God has actually done in Jesus Christ. And if he sent him in the likeness of the flesh of sin, well, cope. Rejoice. And that's why the early church came up with a particular way of analysing the how of Christmas. They knew that they couldn't go beyond what was written and so they analysed the how of Christmas negatively. They said what wasn't the case rather than what was the case. And so I'm going to um, give to you, this is very ambitious, there are not many congregations that could cope with this, and I thought you guys are so switched on you can cope with this. I'm going to give you the, um, a, a, a statement. This was a statement that was the result of a 75-year council. Okay, so imagine a committee meeting that goes for 75 years. That's my kind of committee meeting. I just think that takes, that's like generational committee meeting. Um, and they came up with a statement, and here it is. Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood. See, that's what we've been saying, right? Truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one being, that's, remember that's in the creed, that's a sort of the highlight point of the creed, of one being with the Father as regards His divinity as Godhead and at the same time of one being with us as regards His manhood. 
like us in all respects apart from sin, just as, just as Paul says in Romans 8.3, you see. As regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before the ages, but as yet uh, regards his manhood, begotten for us men and for our salvation of Mary, the Virgin, the God-bearer. And then here's, here's the key point. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognised in two natures. How? Oh, golly, we don't know how you put the two natures of divinity and humanity together in one person, but we know how they weren't put together. Without confusion, without change, without division, without separation. The distinction of the natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, that's hypostasis, not as parted or separated into two persons, and so on. Now you can see what they're kind of getting at, can't you? We, we, we don't really know how the divine and human nature are unified into one person. That's beyond our knowledge it's mystery actually truly what we can say some things about that aren't the case it's without confusion and without change that is the divine nature didn't get all sort of mixed up with human nature and get a bit less than divine and the human nature didn't get all sort of mixed up and confused and changed with the divine nature and so become not really human nature but sort of this quasi divinization it's not like the when you put and i'm just i'm reaching here uh eggs and flour and milk together. Anyone know what you get? You mix it all together and you whip it up and you put it all together and they're changed. The, the stuff becomes unified and it becomes a fourth thing. You know what it becomes? Pancakes. Or white sauce. If instead of eggs, you have milk, butter, Something, yes. I knew. Someone corrected me on this this morning. And, but you, you, see, you see, when you cook, what you do is you put stuff together and it gets mixed in and it becomes a new thing. That's not what happened with Jesus. Not confusion. They didn't get mixed up. Not changed. We didn't bring God down and stop being human. The two natures remain the same. And at the same time, notice the second pair without division, without separation. so that it was the man Christ Jesus in his divinity and the divine Christ Jesus in his humanity who did and said all the things that Jesus Christ did and said. It, you can't do it to say that there were some sort of the divine bits of Jesus did the divine sort of actions and said the divine words and the human bits of Jesus did the human actions and the human words, you know, that, that when Jesus was kind of sleeping, that was him in his humanity. Uh, when he was doing miracles, that was Jesus in his divinity. When he was dying, that was Jesus in it. No, no. That would be to separate and to divide the natures. Without division, without separation. Beyond that, we don't know how the incarnation works. I think the, this is the Council of Chalcedon, it's called Chalcedon, C-H-A-L-C-E-D-O-N. Beyond Chalcedon, what Chalcedon writes, I think we go into speculation that's beyond our pay grade. But at least the why of Christmas. Why did the Father send the Son in the likeness of sinful flesh? Why do it? Why send him all the way into our situation? 
Do you see what the apostle goes on to say? He says, as a sin offering. Uh, that word sin offering is exactly the same phrase that's used all through Leviticus. Remember that funny reading that we had from Leviticus, which talks about the sin offering that was made by the Israelites. Well, it was a sin, but as the author to the Hebrews puts it, the blood of bull and goat, bulls and goats was never going to take away sin, obviously. And so here's the real sin offering. And suddenly the logic of the paragraph kind of unfolds because what's happening as Jesus is a sin offering is that God condemns sin in the flesh. God condemns the right problem in the right place. You see how if Jesus hadn't come into the flesh, the paragraph wouldn't work? If Jesus had stayed just a little bit, oh, I'm not getting dirty and messy like that. It's a bit like the way I play with children. Right? So children, they're grotty, they're snotty, and they're sort of pooey. And I, you know, I, I would often have gloves on. I just didn't want to touch because it's too messy. Is that what Jesus has done? He just hasn't gotten quite to us. Now he came all the way into the flesh without sin so that God could condemn sin in the flesh. And suddenly the paragraph makes sense. God has nailed the right problem in the right place. He's nailed it to the cross. Note that the apostle doesn't quite say here that God condemned Jesus Christ. Do you see that? It's worth just taking this seriously as well. Uh, we, we don't want to slip into saying that angry God hit nice Jesus instead of hitting us. That's not quite how it worked either. No, what God condemns here is sin. Now, he condemns it in Jesus Christ on the cross because Jesus Christ became sin for us. John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, which is a superb book, you should, everyone should read The Cross of Christ at some point, puts it like this. We must not then speak of God punishing Jesus or Jesus persuading God. For to do so is to set them over against each other as if they acted independently of each other or even were in conflict with each other. We must never make Christ the object of God's punishment or God the object of Christ's persuasion for both God and Christ were subjects, not objects taking the initiative together to save us sinners. You can hear the point that the, uh, Stott's making, and it's, it's a point that is, is very important, unbroken Trinitarian unity. Jesus is not some mere victim that God hits instead of you. God condemns sin in the flesh. And that means he carves out a place where there is no condemnation anymore. And so let's, let's land this plane. Um, Paul's conclusion comes, um, kind of interestingly enough, at the start of his argument, not the end of his argument. Um, it, it's, kind of, it's kind of nice. It's so great, it's so beautiful, it's so full of grace and power that he has to just say it right up front, there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And you go, really? How's that work? And then by the end of verse 3, you go, ah, now I know why there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. 
Notice again, the apostle doesn't say, you are not condemned in Christ Jesus, although that's true, it's true, but it's too small. It's not that you're not condemned, it's that there is no condemnation left to be had. It's gone. It's eviscerated. It's evaporated in Christ Jesus. And that's because of, and I'm going to give you this gift right now, okay? You can take this away, you, can, you have to you say it, you heard it here first, and perhaps last actually. It's because of Christmas plus Easter or Christa. You like that? Christa. They have to go together. Christmas plus Easter is what makes for no condemnation. No Christmas and there's still condemnation left. No Easter and there's still condemnation left. It's when you have Christmas plus Easter then what you have is condemnation ruled out, evaporated. And there is nothing more crucial for life than knowing the fact that you in Christ Jesus live in a condemnation-free zone. There's none left for you. Not from God, not from other people who gives a toss what they think, and not from yourself. And take a moment just to kind of reflect on this how much of your self-talk, how much of just that sort of way that you do that funny self-conscious thing where you, you address yourself, how much of our self-talk is condemnatory. And the apostle says you can be free from that because there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus because of Christmas plus Easter. There's, there's rebuke in Christ Jesus. Absolutely, God uh, is completely committed to you, growing more and more like Jesus Christ, and so he corrects and he trains you. It's an act of his love. There's struggle with sin in Christ Jesus. Of course, there's struggle with sin. There's highs and there's lows and there's ups and there's downs in Christ Jesus. Absolutely. And in a moment, we're going to confess our sins. And, and so there's confession in Christ Jesus. That's absolutely true. But you know, there's one thing that there is not in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And we kind of love hanging on to a little bit of condemnation, don't we? Often I hear people say something along the lines of, I find it really hard to forgive myself. I mean, just, just let that stand there for a moment and look at that for a second. You find it hard to forgive yourself? Like, you have the moral authority to forgive yourself, do you? Forgiveness is yours to dispense for you? I mean, what kind of justice is that? No, there's only one who has the moral authority to forgive you. It's God in Christ Jesus. And you know what? It's done. You should, you should stop playing God. It's an act of pride, actually, to say you can't forgive yourself. You've got to stop being your own judge. Stop being so proud. People say, I've done, I've done stuff that's just so bad. Surely God's angry at me. Not according to God, at least. You may, you may know better than him, but not according to God. There's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. The great British preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his commentary on this exact paragraph in Romans, um, wrote this, and you've got to forgive his gender-specific language. We've got to finish with this. A Christian is a person, a man, who can never be condemned. 
He can never come into a state of condemnation again. That's just Romans 8.1. And then he says, because this is true of him, the Christian should never feel condemnation. He should never allow himself to feel it. The devil will try and make him feel it, but he must answer the devil. And guess, guess what you answer the devil with when the devil tempts you to feel condemned? What do you answer the devil with? Romans 8.1 There is no condemnation now. Now! Not, not in the future. I mean, there won't be any condemnation in the future as well, but, but there is no condemnation now in Christ Jesus. And Lloyd-Jones concludes, most of our troubles are due to our failure to realise the truth of this verse. Such a fascinating comment, isn't it? Most of our troubles are due to our failure to realise the truth of this verse in our hearts. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That is the magnificence of the grace of God to us in Christmas plus Easter. Amen.